0: P-E-H, Philosophy, Ethics, and Humanities in Medicine. This new online open access journal covers topics ranging from fetal potential, to Darwinian evolution, to ethics of proposed mental health legislation. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is the Editor-in-Chief of PEH, Dr. Michael Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz practices psychiatry in Austin, Texas, where he is also the Medical Director of the Irwin Foundation, a foundation supporting initiatives in psychiatric education, services delivery, and research. From this space, he edits the online, open-access peer-reviewed journal, Philosophy, Ethics, and Humanities in Medicine. He is also a clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of Hawaii and an adjunct professor in philosophy and psychiatry at the University of Louisville, and he's recently co-edited a book called CNS, Norepinephrine neurobiology, and therapeutics. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Leslie. It's great to be on the air with you.
0: Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. Dr. Schwartz, I'd love to talk about some of the more challenging papers that you've been involved with in your tenure as editor so far. What's been really exciting and interesting so far?
1: As a psychiatrist, I'm I'm really excited by the paper coming out of England and Wales on their mental health legislation because it also illustrates a way in which philosophy, ethics, and humanities and medicine an international journal can take up issues which are hot in the United States and see them in other countries and from other cultural perspectives. And then we learn about ourselves and also about the world.
0: Tell us about that one in particular.
1: Well, the issue there has to do with the possibility that people with serious mental illnesses can be harmful to themselves and to other people can be dangerous. Well, what should we do as a society in terms of restricting rights and privileges of people with mental illness? Now, in England, these rules are getting more strict, but There's controversy there because they're saying, well, you know, we're importing violent rules from a violent society, which is the United States, and we're not violent like that, so we don't need these rules. But on the other hand, I think that 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 might or might not be the case. Data will speak for itself, so uh, we're going to have a really very good debate about this in Britain. And I'm hoping that Americans, people from the United States and from other countries, can also jump in with their own perspectives. If you look at serious mental illness around the world, it's just amazing how cultural lenses play a role in how well or how uh, poorly people do. And this article gets into that.
0: How do they do this in the U.K.?
1: Well, the U.K. has had a more liberal outlook. They they have not been as, as, as uh, prone to uh, incarcerate or, or, or to hospitalize, I should say, patients with with serious mental illness, but the legislation is changing. And of course, one might say perhaps the world is getting more violent. The laws are really up for grabs right now, and, and we are going to be a place where these laws will be debated. I'm hoping that our colleagues from Japan will join in this discussion. Something fascinating happened in Japan with respect to serious mental illness. They took the disease schizophrenia and they renamed it. They changed the name from schizophrenia to integrative disorder, And there was a remarkable improvement in outcome for all of the people with this illness. That's perhaps another way to deal with serious mental illness, just by reframing and by removing stigma, which is what the net result was of renaming the illness. If you can actually show that people will do better, if you don't say, well, you have schizophrenia, which of course can be a conversation stopper, no, you have an integrative disorder. Well, it turns out physicians are more willing to treat. People are more willing to Give jobs and coexist and and live with uh, patients with these conditions, and there's more hope and optimism. So around the world, we start seeing different ways that cultures deal with illness. We can kind of hash this out on our journal.
0: Again, for those not familiar with your journal, open access means that it's posted on the web for free, and once the paper is published, others can write in with commentary, correct?
1: An open access journal is kept on the web in perpetuity. It's actually stored In numerous libraries around the world, the National Library of Medicine supports this project. So do other libraries in other nations, and anyone with access to a computer can download these articles. In many parts of the world, this is the library. There's no money for books, there's no money for publications, and we are the library. So if we publish a paper, it can be hit thousands and thousands of times if you think of the cost of downloading that article. On the fee-per-article basis of other peer-reviewed journals, it's really remarkable how uh, information can be disseminated in this way. And then again, people reading the articles can, if they want to, write a comment and send it in, and we'll publish it.
0: Now, I'm presuming that you keep track of which articles are most highly accessed. That's correct. What's been the most highly accessed paper so far?
1: The most highly accessed paper so far has been a paper on genetics. That was one of our most eminent papers. And you can go online right now and you can have access to that article. It's by David Resnick, who is an eminent geneticist. And David's article is still our most accessed paper. It was published last June. It's about genetic modification and genetic determinism. We have a lively sub-series of articles on genetics, the possibility of changing uh, human the human organism through genetics and also uh, on evolutionary biology. We have another article on evolutionary biology, which is really very popular. That talks about how evolutionary biology has really been left out of medicine and how uh, really, if you want to understand many illnesses, for example, influenza would be one of the more uh, common ones, you really have to use the evolutionary perspective. This article is called Evolution in Medicine, the Long Reach of Dr. Darwin. It's by Neil Shanks and Rebecca Piles. And it's an article which is called highly accessed. The, the web keeps track of our articles and when they are downloaded a lot they are called highly accessed and that uh, is another one that is very highly accessed and I think a very good paper. We're going to have comments on that paper. The paper also gets into the issue of evolution. If you have problems with the notion of evolution, which of course is a cultural issue in the United States, how can you understand the evolution of organisms and illnesses which is occurring really in our time as we sit here?
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Michael Schwartz. We are discussing the new online journal, Philosophy, Ethics, and Humanities in Medicine. Dr. Schwartz what kind of credentials do people uh, need to have to respond to these papers? I would think, especially when you start talking about Darwinism and evolutionary biology that that you'd get quite an interesting group of people that could comment. <laughs>
1: Well, there's no doubt about that, and particularly since we're courting controversy with some of our articles, we are peer-reviewed, which means that anyone can send us an article, and they really have, they have to have no credentials. Now, they might come up against the factor of cost, because it costs money to publish a paper in a journal such as ours, and if you're part of one of the sponsoring institutions, which could be over 300 universities, or it could be the NIH or the Wellcome Foundation, Then the cost is covered by the sponsoring institution. If you're on your own, then you either have to pay the cost or you can apply for a waiver. The journal is committed to publishing papers regardless of the economic circumstances of the author. So, for example, if you come from one of the poorest nations in the world, there's no charge whatsoever. That simply gets you into the journal. If you come from a small liberal arts college, you're going to get a discount if you ask for one, although it is up to the publisher. And now, philosophy, ethics, and humanities and medicine also has a small number of uh, grants from donors, so we can also support publications. So it, it really gets quite complicated as to how one can publish, and I think probably the major limit right now is cost, because there are costs associated with putting a journal like this out. There's even a blog at Earlham College talking about the ethics and costs of online publication. But anyone listening to this channel, if they like one of the articles, can send in a comment. That doesn't cost anything. Comments are added right to the website. A paper that will be coming out within the next few weeks, I believe, by a gentleman in Cambridge, England, a retired physician, initially came in as a comment. The editors really liked this gentleman's comment, thought that he was had a lot to say, and invited him to, instead of just writing a comment, actually send in a full formal commentary, which is a paper, really, reviewing the subject. And he did that, and that went through our peer review process, and it's been accepted, and it's going to be published.
0: Hypothetically speaking, if a psychiatrist, say, in Boise, Idaho, wanted to publish a paper, how much would it cost?
1: Well... Without waivers, it can cost up to $1,500.
0: But again, there are options to reduce that fee depending on your situation.
1: Absolutely. And among the open access literature, costs can range, and, and, and this would be all of the journals of biology, cell biology, medicine, et cetera, with the varying publishers, costs can range up to $2,500.
0: We've talked about a couple interesting issues, the uh, rights and privileges of seriously mentally ill patients, uh, evolutionary biology. What else has been a hot topic in your journal?
1: Before you do that, Leslie, I would like to, just for the sake of defending open access, tell the uh, listeners who probably heard those numbers and gasped that anyone who is interested in submitting a paper really should not consider cost to be an obstacle because, again, there is a process of getting waivers and grants. And we are committed to publishing good papers, and we will work with contributors who send in good papers. People sometimes see that cost and say, oh, I don't even want to bother. This is this is not something I can participate in. But that's just not true.
0: So submit it, and hopefully the cost will be worked out. Submit
1: your paper and, and work with the editors. And I would say that's true of our journal, and I would say that's true of all of the journals. And we will work out an equitable arrangement.
0: We will at a
1: cost that uh, will meet your uh, particular economic circumstances.
0: Right. It it sounds so democratic.
1: Well, it's an effort to be democratic. It's an ideal. And and, and again, I I would really refer everyone to Peter Suber, S-U-B-E-R's blog from Earlham College on the whole politics and ethics of open access. And it's his opinion, and it's also mine, that this will survive, and in five to ten years everything will be open access, whether it be in the form of these journals or in some other form, and I'm betting on the form of these journals. I think these journals are absolutely a wonderful service.
0: Well, and too, it sounds like it's one of the beginnings of... What people are calling Web 2.0, that it, it's a, a conversation, not just a one way depository of information, that we actually have a chance to give our opinion and feedback and experience in response.
1: I can share with you another really exciting project which has not yet happened, and I can do this because the person proposing this very much wants this to happen. We have a wonderful, heroic story of a man who suffered a brain injury in the Second World War. This was in Russia, and his physician, the person caring for him, actually a neuropsychologist, was in exile, running away from Stalin and, and and the whole horrors of the war and communism. And these two together created the whole modern world of rehabilitation from head injury. That story is a story that this gentleman, who is not associated with a university at this point in his career, very much wants to develop, and philosophy, ethics, and humanities, and medicine is committed to doing that, and we're hoping that this will take the form of a movie.
0: So you could be a movie producer as well.
1: That's why, yes, I I raise that. Because we're online, first of all, we can publish, along with papers, uh, videos. We can publish all kinds of subsidiary materials, and we can use PHM to be a springboard for developing projects that might not be based solely in our journal, might be introduced in our journal, and might go uh, into into movies. And that means really working with movie producers, might go into debates. We're very much trying to get involved in the politics of health coverage. We think this is an issue for philosophy, ethics, and humanities and medicine. We have Projects lined up about health insurance and health coverage and how that should be resolved and how thoughtful processes will go into that, not just the political process. We we really are open to all kinds of controversial and new ideas.
0: Well, thank you so much for appearing on Clinician's Roundtable today. We've been discussing philosophy, ethics, and humanities in medicine. I'm Dr. Leslie Lund. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.